This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Card carrying Basing at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. You stood next to Big Poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. This is Cade Massey, host of Warden Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio Sirius XM Channel 132 every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. Caden Massey hosting this morning with my buddy, collaborator, faculty, colleague, Audie Weiner. Hey, hey. Good In morning. the studio. Good morning, honey. How it's are you doing, sir? Really. Missed a week and watched a lot of baseball in between. Yeah. It doesn't surprise me. Doesn't surprise me. We have two other collaborators who are not here. They are out and about. Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, they will be back. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You guys can be here. You can jump in. Give us a shout. one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Or give us an email, businessradio at com. You can email us now, live, anytime in the next two hours, or during the week when we're replayed. Or if you're listening to a podcast, drop us an email, businessradio at com. You can also hit us up on Twitter. Our handle on twitter is at w moneyball we love to hear from you we take comments questions complaints we take over under suggestions whatever you got at w moneyball is a good way to reach out to us it's also a way to stay on top of the sports analytics world we follow our guests we we tweet periodically about the sports analytics world from at w moneyball we are up for a fantastic show i'm so psyched about these guests we've had them lined up for a couple of weeks it's a great combination this is a True Wharton money. Where else are you going to get? Stephen Strogatz, famed applied mathematician, author, teacher. Stephen Strogatz is joining us at the bottom of the hour. And then we have the guys from Huddle. We have the founder, the co-founder of Huddle. These guys have revolutionized recruiting technology and football. Game changers, as my nephews like to refer to them, at the top of the next hour. So Stephen Strogatz and the guys from Huddle, this show, in our regular guest slots. In the next half hour, we're open lines. We'll talk about whatever... You're interested in talking about or whatever my buddy Audie Weiner is interested in talking about. What is it, Audie, that has caught your eye in the world of sports? Well, you know, it is that late summer where football is starting up, which means I'm starting to fire up the databases. and starting That's to what look. football is to you, right? Yeah, it's football is a bunch of numbers because I don't watch that much football. Um, I do watch a little bit. Uh, the Eagles are a little excited for, you know, my old hometown favorite, the Jets. But... Uh, it's real baseball t- time for me, so I've been watching a lot of baseball. So I just saw there's, I think there's 41 games left. So I feel like we we should be near the end, but we 41 are. games is a lot of baseball. It is a lot of games, and particularly there's a, there's a lot of tight races. I mean, there's there's, there's, so there's not a lot of tight well, races. Well, sure. Well, first of all, there's the there's wild card. There's a lot of not tight races. There's a lot of wild card competition. There are tight races. Well, what do you mean? Got, so what, what, where, where do you get that impression that there's no tight races? I didn't say no. I said there's a lot of not tight. There's, there's a, a lot of the, double-digit leads. There's some double-digit leads for the for the the, the, the uh, division championship. So the Yankees have a, have a nine-game lead. The Twins have been caught is, by, that, the, by the by the by uh, the Cleveland Indians um, at this point, which is an interesting one. So it's super tight in, in the American League Central. The Astros have run away with it. The Dodgers have run away with it. But the Cubs and the Braves, Nationals, Phillies, Mets crew are certainly fighting for right. wild card spots, if not the actual lead there. The, right. the Braves are a bit ahead, but nevertheless, there's a lot, a lot of teams, a lot of games to play, a lot of games against their division 
rivals. Okay, so, so basically, a lot going on. I'm not, hold on, let me recap. Let me recap. It looks to me like we have one tight divisional race in each league, yep. the central in each. Otherwise, we kind of have division champs ready to be crowned. And not, lots of not quite fight. in the east, NL East, where our fills are. I mean, falling. Yeah, they're falling. The Nats are going to give the Braves a run. But what you're saying is because that cutting edge sport of baseball came up with this quacky wild card idea, a few ideas really quacky. got out of limb. Quirky or quacky? Which one did you want? They, uh, <laughs> we've still got some interest because yeah. the wild card races are competitive. Okay. They are. And, uh, and of course, you know, as is um, always the case with baseball, you have the individual competition. So there are various different titles for leads in different categories and there's player performances which are always worth watching so the angels every year are not even close to being a contender but it's always fun to watch what mike trout is up to and he looks like he's the he and cody bellinger at 39 homers he's never hit more i don't think he's even hit has he even hit 40 in a season he's he's never hit much more than 40 if if he has hit 40 Mm -hmm. i think he has um but he certainly has never come anywhere close to 50 and he's i mean people love to talk about on pace what does it mean to be on pace by people you mean us us and (laughs) and lots of people who follow baseball or sports in general how do you how do you extrapolate a a 39 home run partial season so we've we've got 41 left they play like 162 or something it's very nice it's one quarter it's one quarter one quarter left yeah so that's really easy then right? it is it is <laughs> you'd predict what 52 uh, 51 52 if you yeah. just extrapolated the pace that he's been going up until this point until uh, the end do people build nuances into those extrapolations so for example if we look at if we look at team performance and we ju- we can't just extrapolate because they're so pushed around by the competition so if you you know if you're in a division who's playing lousy teams or you got a lot of lousy teams in front of you you're going to outpace your historical. Do they do that kind of thing with home run paces? I mean, is there any, any way to add nuance to that? N- well, there is and there isn't. So there isn't any formal mechanism for adding strength of schedule into individual competitions, if that's what you're essentially Or, or even evaluating what they've done in the past relative to who they were facing. Right. So strength of schedule in the past and strength of schedule in the future. And I will point out that this is the major project that my student worked on with me over the summer. We tried to create an ELO for baseball and the the, idi- the idiosyncrasy of ELO, what makes it interesting, is that it's an adjustment for schedule. We don't usually do it in baseball. No one has ever done it before. We so do just it by to teams. recap real quickly, ELO, of course, is the classic way of ranking chess players, named after, I think, probably a, an a man named ELO. Yeah. Named, named ELO, for, I think this is from the 60s. But then other sports have picked up on it as a parsimonious power ranking of the teams that are or the right. individuals who are competing. Particularly 538. They've made quite a, a mountain out of it. Well, greatly precedes 538. But sure, it but, what, but they're they, a news organization, and they have an ability to, to magnify things. And they did this thing where it's like, okay, we're, we're, we're not going to try to do a unique thing for every sport. We're going to start with just using ELO across sports because it's understandable, I think. Yep. All right. So you've decided to do that for baseball. For I did, players. I didn't, even, I didn't know this. For players. For players, not teams. No. So oh. ELO has been used for baseball teams, sure, certainly. But we try to do this for players on a player basis. And it's actually quite complicated. But the basic idea is that if you get a hit off a great pitcher, that should be more rewarding than getting hit off a I crappy pitcher. I asked you this pitcher. question. I had no idea you were working on this. Exactly. Thing. So, In fact, okay. uh, so this is Jacob Ritchie. He worked on it this summer, and I think he submitted it to Fangrass, potentially for publication, and to a conference, and it needs to get wrapped up, and there's a lot of details. You know, when you work with a professor, you just can't just... You know, slapdash things together. It, it, these projects have a way of never finishing because there's always one more thing to do. Yeah. 
So, but 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 you say you said on the one hand it's hard. On the other hand, he's submitting it in places. So what if you guys well, so found? so what we, have you done? we we have we 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 have a way of doing it. So what's what's interesting about so it is how things this, change. Yes, you can do this schedule adjustment, the strength of schedule adjustment for Mike Trout. You can give us a yeah. better forecast for his end of season. Well, interestingly enough, so Mike's Trout um, on the traditional metrics, at least by the time we were doing it in midsummer, was probably the third or fourth best hitter in the major leagues when we did it after we did the elo he was number one <laughs> he Good. was he had faced very tough competition and uh, almost... cody bellinger and yelich who were sort of uh, slightly ahead of him did not quite face that competition what this was interesting was, it was yeah it, it is interesting i and, and uh, we had we not I don't, I don't have the numbers in front of me but one of the things that was actually quite fascinating at the time i haven't seen the numbers since uh, end of july when when our our summer program completed Bryce Harper, who was about the 50th ranked hitter in Major League Baseball by standard metrics. Yeah. By the way, what are those standard metrics if you're going to boil them down to a single number? OPS like is, is one. That if you needed one number, um, I don't Remind w- me what OPS oh, so o- OPS is on-base plus slugging. So you take your on-base percentage, you add to it your slugging percentage. Slugging percentage doesn't include walks. Slugging percent, it's, not, it's not a percentage at all. It's really an average. Slugging, slugging average. Slugging percentage is a bases weighted ba- it's batting bases, average? It's basically bases per at-bat. Yeah, okay. Um, so it's a, it's a weighted batting average, yep. but it excludes walks. So if you add in... Yep. The on-base percentage, you get a walk included. Yep. Um, there's things that other people use called WRC or WRC+, plus, which adjusts for park. Um, weighted runs created. There's WOBA, weighted on-base percentage. There's, okay. These are the standard things yep. that techies or sabermetricians might use. If you go to a baseball game, though, just to show up at a park, they will be showing you on-base percentage and OPS, which are no incredible things because historically you saw average RBIs yeah, and home right, runs. Right. And so those two metrics in particular have really integrated themselves into the regular broadcast. Okay. If you want to get super sophisticated, you can think about these WRC pluses and WOBA pluses. What a lot of people talk about is war, which is, of course, wins above replacement. And that's something that they're trying to do in other sports, but it has a long history, a longer history in baseball. And I spent the weekend with, with my, uh, my aunt and uncle up in Connecticut. And my, my uncle is a lifelong Yankee fan and watches every game, tapes them, actually. That's a story by itself. Um, because he can't sit through the whole game because it takes too long. So he tapes them. He starts about an hour and a half late. Understandable. And then he sits there with remote control this and is, watches the game. This is the wisdom of age right yeah, there. And That's... it's actually, you know what? It's actually quite brilliant. But he says to me, what's war? I don't get this war. What's war? <laughs> and I've actually tried to explain it to him. So that's a function of age or maybe my failure of explanation. But it's very hard to explain war to people. But one of the things that war is, is, is tries to do is put everything on the same scale. Yeah. So you put fielding and you put, you put an adjustment for the, 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 uh, the position you play. You put in your bases running, your arm, and of course your batting. And, then, and, you, and it's all on the values, how much extra wins you would bring to an average team compared to if you were replaced by a replacement level player, which yep. is a, a, uh, just someone you can get for free. Yep. And Mike Trout tends to dominate the war boards, but no one understands them. And there's a good reason why they don't understand them, because nobody shows you what's in them. So I always, I'm always i suspicious of a statistic, which I can't replicate. And it's also five levels of estimation. So it's not a counting stat. So yeah. one of the things I think is beautiful about sports is we have these counting stats that, that are sometimes predictive, sometimes not, sometimes descriptive, sometimes not. But they're not estimates. Yeah. And when you start putting right. in estimates, the war is an estimate. It's, it's come from lots of models and mm-hmm. lots of integration and five levels of it and it starts to get suspicious and we've done this on our show I've shown you like yeah. Bryce Harper with one method of war was under yeah. one and another close to three that's just insane right you, to, to the outsider you'd think there was one war but in fact there's multiple wars which does kind of 
you know, diminished. And they're different. Okay. Okay. So going back then, you've said of these various stats. Well, war you wouldn't want to use anyway for ELO for ELO because it's it's, it's composite. It includes, yeah, it includes yeah. defense, for example. So you just want to know who's the best hitter. So but, by OPS, Bryce Harper was about fiftieth, forty five, fiftieth, and when we did the ELO adjusted hitting, he was about fifth, fifth or sixth. Wow, that's a big adjustment. And if you look at it, you can understand why he's torn apart some great hitting, great pitching. So why is it one? What was your prior on how much? of an adjustment you would get when you did that because my prior would not have suggested you'd go from 50 to 5. You'd have guys moving that far. Well, first of all, the, one of the things that's, that's amazing about the major leagues right now. But also, to move that far at the at the right end of the distribution is all the more remarkable. It you, is you might remarkable. move from 300 to 250 because that's just everyone's close together. They, but what's stunning about baseball this year is while there's a big gap between, say, the f- first five and maybe 50, there is a lot of clusters, a lot, a lot of players having very good seasons. Not great seasons, but very good seasons. Okay. If you just, the numbers of players who are in the mid-20s approaching 30 home runs. I mean, this is an, a record-breaking season for home runs, which people are quite concerned about. There's over 10% more home runs being hit this year than the previous record year. It's, which it, last it, year. It, what's amazing to me, again, as an outsider, is you hear, you hear the gnashing of teeth about pitching dominating all the strikeouts and and the, the, but then you also see the numbers with, around home runs and they're a little bit hard to reconcile but that's this is what they're saying about the game it's one of these two things it's, and we're not seeing the kind of middle range of activity we're not no no doubt about it a lot of walks a lot of strikeouts a lot of home runs mm-hmm. um but you know it's still fun to watch i mean it is slow i mean uncle lenny he's absolutely right that it, it, it goes too slow but but uh i think what what bryce i didn't expect to see a big jump like that but actually it was quite gratified because if it didn't do anything it wouldn't be it wouldn't no, be interesting it's hugely so, gratifying. right so but it's not just that it did something it pushed harper who it pushed harper, people right. believe is a great hitter and but right. then they're kind of confused by some of the things they see him do or the, the numbers look i mean i watched him by the way i happened to be sitting at a bar last night when they opened their game Against the Cubs, and he was batting first, right? And and he strikes out, around. strikes out, strikes out. Looking, it was not a I mean, look. It doesn't mean anything, but it was the first time I'd seen him bat for a while, and it was it was a long at bat too, like ten pitchers. Well, something. that's what that's one of the reasons that Bryce Harper is a great hitter is that he does squeeze ten. Ten uh, pitches out of a, out of a pitcher, right early in the game, and they don't throw more than a hundred. So it's a big right. chunk for one batter exactly. to take up. But you know, so just to to close the loop on baseball, there's so much going on. There's so much to talk about. But I did watch the Yankees Blue Jays series, and what is remarkable about the Blue Jays, even though they're not even close to in it, they're 51 and 72. They have three children of former Major League Baseballs, two baseball players. Two of them are Homer, Hall of Famers. So they have Bo Bichette. They have. Uh, of course, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Yeah. And they have Biggio's son. I didn't know Biggio's son was playing. And okay. these guys are incredible. Really? They're super young. I think the combined like age is 60. Are they that, <laughs> They're know, 20. They play when you're, I guess the Jays can play 20-year-olds. Most teams don't play kids quite that young. Oh, huh? When they're that good, you do. Okay. You, you absolutely do. You can play a 19-year-old. So I think Guerrero uh, is either 19 or 20. And these guys, they're super young. You watch them on, on TV, you're like, holy kid. These are children. <laughs> They're still in high school. Uh-huh. But they are exceptional players. They swing amazingly hard. They have great plate discipline. They're fast. They have all the tools, and they're so fun to watch. All right. Was it, is it a philosophy these guys have had to collect former baseball player kids? Or is we'll it have just to bring chance? someone it's in from Toronto chance? to tell us this. Yeah. Wow. Well, you know, something interesting about that division is that the Sox, poor Shane, have just dove lately. So the Yankees are up nine, but they're up on the Rays. They're up 17 on the Sox. We had an over-under maybe four or six weeks ago on how many games 
above the Sox, the Yankees were going to end up. And we, and the over-under was, was like 10. Yeah. And it's 17 and a half. They floated nine for a long time. I don't know what's happened. And right out of the All-Star break, or close to the All-Star break, the Red Sox took three out of four from the Yankees at Fenway. And it looked like things were reversing. Okay. And then the Yankees turned around and swept them at home. And then the Red Sox have tanked, which is sad. I mean, Red Sox have an incredible lineup. They have a, a, a handful of ridiculously good starting pitching. And it's remarkable that they're this far behind. Well, this is, I mean, you kind of kind of enjoy it when these teams load up and it seems unfair that the coastal elites get these rosters. And then you, you kind of take pleasure when it doesn't work out so well. Nope. If, if you're not pulling for the Sox, it's kind of fun to watch the big payroll teams swoon. Do we have any sense of why that is? Not, oh. not the pleasure, the swoon? No, I mean, I mean, first, I mean, it's the Rays that are real, the real surprise, and they're well, the we, ones who are remarkable. We have to love that. They're, of they're, course. They're like Moneyball poster They children. are Moneyball poster. They have the, the allegedly one of the two or three largest sports analytics group among mm-hmm. all Major League Baseball, mm-hmm. and they have no money and no fans. Um, so <laughs> the fact that they're doing as well as they do is remarkable. I mean, but if you look backwards, listen. No one. Everyone thought the the National League East would be the the league where four teams would be competing for for the uh, division championship, and for many many you know, almost the entire season we had written that off as being maybe the Braves and the Phillies. What's interesting now is the Nationals have passed the Phillies, and the Mets are on the yeah. Rise. How about the Mets? And this is insane. And of course, it's making you know the Mets are uh, have a huge fan base being in New York, and they always oh, they always feel a little bit to me like. Um, like uh, sad sacks, you know, uh, Eeyore types. Yeah. But the yet, well, and, and yet, any yet anyone who follows the Mets know that they seem to either be last or mirac- miraculously coming from nowhere. That seems to be the Mets' pattern. Okay, and they are surging in a way that is highly unpredictable, and certainly goes against what I forecasted a few weeks back when I, and when Eric and I were in the in the studio. Well, you, you know, usually we get to see what's going to happen in August and September by what happens at the trade deadline. Teams are either go- yeah. making a play for it or they're or they're cutting cutting bait. And the Mets made a play. Okay. They picked up Strowman's great pitcher. Okay, and. Um, we shocked by that. People thought they would they would be selling the farm mm-hmm. to rebuild. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of pitchers and speaking of, it doesn't Sale pitch for the Sox? He does. he does. So he does. Hasn't he done some ridiculous things? Yeah, like he's a great pitcher. But he's been, you know, one of the things about pitching, which is something to talk about in general about sports, is variance in performance from game to game. And as a sports, you know, among the pantheon of all the possible places you can be in, in sports, pitching, I believe is the most highly variable, where a pitcher can go from devastating 13 strikeouts, one hit in one, in one game, the next game, get you know, just, just raked for eight runs and two innings and has nothing. Okay, so you're, you're saying a lot there. So to begin with, we've all observed this and probably mostly not made much of it. So you're asking, let's talk about within-player variation. Across sports. We, uh, well, and then compare that yeah. within player variation across sports. And you're saying, one, you're just saying, look, within player variation at, the, at pitching, let's just hold with that. Let's just look at that in absolute terms, is high. That's right. And so I think you're saying that because it makes sale all the more impressive because he's relatively low Yes, variation. he is. And one of the reasons why he is sale, Scherzer, Verlander, um, this crew, Kershaw, who've been around for 10 years now and have done it year in and year out, is almost miraculously good. But even someone like Sale can get rocked in a game, absolutely mm-hmm. rocked, and then the next next game come out and throw a okay, three-hitter so, 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 with 15 strikeouts. Okay, so one, tell me how you measure, what would be, how would you operationalize this, this volatility, within-player volatility for pitchers? Yeah. <laughs> 
Theta is a changing. <laughs> now that's a technical way of. So we, theta is the number with the, the that's Greek the letter. Underlying that's quality. the, the underlying quality. Usually, usually you think about um, in baseball, it's the most close to a to a repeated <laughs> trial situation. Okay, but you don't observe theta, so you're no, you to... don't. So our estimate of theta is non-constant and and non-stationary, and you don't do that typically in other sports. When you're watching a basketball player, you don't think about their probability of successfully well, making actually, a three-point. You're, you're pro- exactly wrong about that because that's the one example where people do think. Because that's they, they hot do, hand. That's hot hand. Hand. You picked right, exactly right, yeah. the wrong place. You don't think of running backs that way. No, and we certainly don't think of quarterbacks that way. They're, although Nick maybe Foles has shown bit. us maybe that, yeah, that Foles that, is known as a high right. high variance guy. But um, but but go on. So you're gonna how are you gonna how are you gonna model theta from what you do observe in pitchers? Well, <laughs> just give me just give me a sense of it. Just off the top of your head, it's fine. Well, what we typically do is we it's it's hard to do that. But you, typically, what you do is a, you have a prior, and then you draw that theta from that prior. And that prior is um, prior, what, what stat are you observing? Your prior is on what performance measure? Okay, so what we look at is for what we call over dispersion. So over non stationary is what we call over dispersion in in performance. So if I look at his success rate, and baseball is great because you can always have a, a success rate. So it could be batting average against or a WHIP or this some sort of sim, symbol number. This is right. what I'm asking. You and want so, your WHIP? A WHIP over or, what unit? Over what period of time? Uh, so what you can do is you can so you, you what so it's it's over their season and then you no, and, no but, the, but on it, a game basis yeah so you're saying game by game game you're by game, game by that's the unit you're interested that's in. right you're saying game performance can so you want to take something like whip and ask how much it varies game game, to game. game. all right and then you're gonna you're, or a so, weighted on base percentage you can do that too so one you're saying some of these guys the guys at the top of the game and who have been there for ten years. Are relatively low variance guys. Low and variance, and of course, is, low mean. Right. So low being good in this case. Yeah. Um, so this presumably is a hallmark of some of the top performers that they're that in this place where it's pretty high variance, they're they're lower variance. And then you're saying like making this other claim, which I'm sure you don't have any evidence for, that that within player variation in pitching is higher than than other important positions across sports no evidence whatsoever <laughs> it is a evidence so well, it's not it's not it's not fact free it's it's but it's, it's not collected into a model so the facts are that you'll see pitchers get destroyed one in one week and then come back the next start like tanaka just got just rocked two starts ago last start he was almost flawless i mean essentially gave up one hit in eight innings and the one hit that he gave was plausibly an error yeah so i I would love this is an interesting idea i mean stationarity is hugely important for forecasting hugely important and also rich with psychological traps because what you're suggesting is that we need to not over one implication is that we need to not overreact when you see your favorite pitcher have a bad outing it's not like he's hurt necessarily or that he's beginning to like downhill slide it's that pitching is volatile so but by the way public knows this by the way it's not it's not secret Okay, but I bet the rea- overreaction is still there. Uh, oh, suspect, that would be that would be interesting hypothesis. But it also explains when you see guys who are not necessarily top of the game pitchers come out and throw a no hitter or have these fantastic <laughs> outings. That's right. Which is just that's positive variance. Now the problem with that is that people always typically would imply that that's just that's just the long tail of of, of randomness. Yeah. Yep, and you're There's saying so no. many pitchers. You're saying well, actually the, sh- the people. No, are I'm shifting. not saying that that could be. Uh, that, yeah, I would argue that there's a shift, but the, it's what's common is a gra- a good pitcher having horrible outings. It also occurs that sort of mediocre pitchers have great outings. That direction, I don't know whether that's actually they got better for that one game yeah, or right. they just got lucky through through right. nine innings. 
So, by the way, before we leave baseball, we talked about the Mets. DeGrom's pitching for the Mets right away. He does. Hey, I'm two two for two, guys. Come on, ask me some college football questions. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Turn it around. (laughs) But just some consistency. This is an interesting way to put this. He he has 80 Major League Baseball starts with an earned run of one or lower. And he's the fastest guy to that in the history of baseball. So he's done that since or since 1911, which ought to be the history of baseball, but it turns out they played baseball for about 50 years 1869, yeah. Um, okay, <laughs> 40 years. So um, basically, he's just saying in, in his first 162 starts, half the time he's getting out of the start with less than one earned run against. That's pretty, that's pretty consistent. Extraordinary. I mean, we, he's probably having some bad outings that aren't counted there, but that's a lot of really high-end performance. All right, it's a lot of baseball. That's what happens when you got Audi Weiner as your Well, you let co-host. me run with it. Come on. I'm, I'm, I've been thinking well, about college pull, football, you, so you can go in that direction you if you like. You pulled me in with that non-stationary stuff. I know, stuff. I know. I did. I mean, I'm, I'm a sucker for the non-stationary yeah. stuff. All right, college football. College football. Audi, the beauty of Audi Weiner is that if you got a topic and there's data underneath, he's game. Even It doesn't yeah. matter if you never watched a college football for the first 47 years of his life. If it's got data, he'll get into it. So, Adi, tell me what you found. You This is not even what you were looking for, but it popped out of this thing you were doing about home field advantage in college football. Well, one, so I have this data, which is since 1996. Thank you, Cade, for, for making it accessible to me. Um, of all the outcomes in college football since 1996. Um, and betting lines. You and and betting that. lines, but I haven't didn't use the betting lines yet. So that that's something that's coming. And I wanted to just create a power ranking for every team and every season. And that's actually fairly easy to do with a multiple regression model if you have the entire data. And it was beautifully laid out, so it was just practically, you know, it just it, 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 it built itself. So this is the simplest of power rankings yeah. because it's just based on outcomes. You're not looking at stats and yards per pass nope. attempt or success nope. rates. It's team. just score. Even. It's just you're, score. You're I'm barely... trying to predict the difference. And I try to do that by assigning each team essentially a number. So, by the way, this is a lot like the ELO exercise. I mean, it's very, exactly very the ELO close. exercise, yeah. except that ELO does it on a probability scale, and so it, it uses a link function to turn the difference into a probability. With football, I'm just trying to predict the difference. The only kludge I did, which was to, to cap the, the, you know, the excessive uh, runaways to, at 40 points, I didn't want to... Which is a rough... You'd have rather done something smoother than that, but whatever. This was a quick... Did. You did this in like 20 minutes. 20 minutes. No, and, and, and you get a team, you get uh, rank, you get a team power... Uh, uh, score, and then you also get a home field advantage. And I plotted well, that since you, 1996. You have, you have to have the home field advantage in that model because that pushes things around. So it's just a plot. Of course, it's the yeah. one other variable in the in the And, it's, and it's hugely important. I mean, there's right. a, the, the team that is home has has a, an extra advantage, and, and we're trying to predict in points. So the home field advantage is measured in points. And what came out of it is the home field advantage has, has slowly diminished since 1996, from I think it was mid threes, three and a half or so, maybe even closer to four, but three and a half. No, about three low, and a half. Low, low threes, between low threes. three and three and a half. And now it's clearly in the low twos. We are thrilled, seriously thrilled to have Stephen Strogatz join us. Stephen is the Jacob Gould Sherman Professor of Applied Math at Cornell University. He's a renowned teacher of math. He's one of the world's most highly cited mathematicians, so he's doing research on math, doing, doing the science. He's also a well-known author, multiple books, most recently, this year, 2019, a book titled Infinite Powers, How Calculus Reveals the Secrets of the Universe. We will tell you where to follow Stephen shortly, but first, good morning, Stephen, and welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me on, Kate. We're delighted to have you. Are you calling in from Ithaca this morning? Yes, I am. So what is Ithaca like these days? How is, how is late summer up in western New York? <laughs> 
Yeah, I know. You guys like to tease us about our weather up here. Oh, come on. This is the best time of year <laughs> in Ithaca, is, isn't it? This is the time of year. Yeah. It's, it's pretty good today. Uh, I think, you know, looks like about 70 degrees, our usual cloud cover. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we... we we saw that your book was coming out, and then we saw some of the articles you've written, and you wrote this wonderful piece about Usain Bolt and how you can figure out how fast he wrote. He 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 um, he ran at the peak of his fastest 100 meter runs, and we thought let's let's hear what Stephen has to say about applied math and how it might apply to sports analytics. So we we're delighted to have a chance to talk with you, but maybe we should get a little background from you first. And many of our listeners may not appreciate the distinction of applied math versus pure math. And uh-huh. this is important to where you're coming from and what you're interested in. So can you tell us a little bit about what it means to be an applied mathematician? Sure. So uh, an applied mathematician thinks about how math applies to uh, either science or business or medicine. So it's, it's math in an outward looking mode. You know, there's also this other thing that we talk about, pure math, which is more inward looking. It, it's almost like art or, or poetry. It's math looking in on itself and trying to understand its own structure. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's very powerful and gives a lot of the tools that we use in applied math. But for, for me or people like me who want to apply math to things around us, we have to learn, you know, it's like all the other languages, all the other cultures of science and, and business and, you know, whatever you're interested in. It could be geophysics, it could be astronomy. But so we're we're usually um, a little more versatile mm-hmm. in, in terms of our interests. Mm-hmm. Well, tell us about some of the interests that you've pursued over your career. What what kinds of applications have you found yourself involved in? Well, uh, you remember in that movie Sixth Sense, the little kid says, "I see dead people." <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I mean, Who for me, it's sort of like that. I see math when I when I uh-huh. look around me. I see math everywhere. So you know, like if you cut an apple in the way that's not the usual way. If you sort of cut it sideways, if you look in there, you'll see the seeds are arranged in a pentagon. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I don't know if you ever noticed that. I mean, it's kind of interesting that there's all this hidden geometry. Mm-hmm. Or, um, I mean, my own research has been about stuff like, how, do you, how does all the DNA in your cells fit in there? Because if it was stretched end to end, like if you imagine if one of your cells was the size of a tennis ball, <clears throat> the DNA would be something like 20 miles long. Oh, really? And it has okay. to be all packed in there in a way that your cell can read it so that the cell can function correctly. But, I mean, it's hard to pack 20 miles of thread into a tennis ball without right. um, tangling it up or messing it up. Mm-hmm. So there's that. I, I mean, I thought a little about heart attacks and um, what goes wrong with the electrical waves in your heart when you have this really deadly condition called ventricular fibrillation. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a there's a thing where you'll meet someone at a party and you realize maybe you never met them, but you know someone who knows someone who knows them. Right. You know, like people play the six degrees of separation game or six degrees of Kevin Bacon. So mm. that's math too, because why is it you know why is it such a small number? Well, Stephen, give us give give us let's go one level deeper on that one because sure. it is a phenomenon that people are so familiar with, and also it connects to one of your most cited papers and one of the most influential papers in network theory anywhere. So can you tell us this a little bit more about why that should be less surprising to people than it actually is? Mm-hmm. Well, it's true. It is this topic of, of six degrees, which we think of as something about our social networks, turns out to be a universal principle of networks. So if you look at something like um, the cells in your brain, you know, there's trillions of them. And yet, they communicate very efficiently with each other, which is why we can have complex thoughts and memories and emotions. And doctors will tell you that every 
every neuron in the brain is only just a few synapses away, meaning just a few connections away from every other brain cell. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of the brain is playing the six degrees game mm-hmm. in its own wiring. It's the magic um, of exponentiation. Well, that's right. If you want to get mathy on it, and I know you guys like that sure. with analytics. So the, the crudest way to think of it, which is almost right, but it, you'll see why there's something a little wrong with it, is you could play the game where you could say, like, if, if I know 100 people and each of them knows 100 people, then two handshakes away from me would be 100 times 100, which is already 10,000 people. And, you know, if you keep going like that, and then you go out to the third degree and the fourth degree, so then we're, we're looking at powers, as you say, exponentiation. We're, we're raising 100 to some power, and 100, which is 10 squared, if we do it five times, ten, you know, that'll be 10 to the 10th, which is 10 billion people. That's more than the number of sure, people Sure, and, and we know way more than 100, so... That's right, and 100 so. is a pretty... You'd be a pretty antisocial person to only know 100. So, so you could sort of get a ballpark feeling for why five degrees should be enough to encompass the whole world. But you see, there's something really wrong with this little calculation, which is, of the 100 people I know, when I say each of them knows 100, it's not really right to multiply, because that would assume that it's 100 fresh people at each step, like there's no overlap in social circles. But that's wrong, right? We know that of the 100 people I know, a lot of them know each other. Mm -hmm. Like, think of a fraternity or a club or a team, you know, like there's a lot of the, the links don't just stretch out into virgin territory. They also mm-hmm. go back. So, so it's not really right to just do the simple multiplication, but for decades, sociologists didn't really know, well, how should you do the calculation? Right. Because we don't know what the social network of the world looks like. It's, in fact, to this day, it's never been mapped out. But with Facebook, which now has a, a very large fraction of the world as active members, you know, like, I don't know, 10 or 20% of the world or something Amazing. is on Facebook. Okay. Um, you can actually now do that. Back when we did this this work, my student Duncan Watts and I, this was back in the um, late 90s, Facebook didn't exist yet. And, and the map of the world as a social network certainly did not exist. So we had to just kind of do imaginary thought experiments. But we were able to show that um, you would expect the world to be small in the way that it is observed to be small because of um, shortcuts. By, by shortcut, I mean... Like if, here, let me give you an example. I, I like to play chess on the internet, mm-hmm. and um, through that, I became friendly with a guy in Holland. Now, I've never met the guy, but I know about him. I know how many kids he has. I know what work he does. So I kind of know him, even though I've never shaken his hand. And the interesting thing is that that one connection now puts me much closer to all of his friends in Holland. And so, and in fact, all of my friends back here in Ithaca have this pathway to Holland that they're not even aware of. Mm-hmm. So, so just this one link between me and this guy does a lot of work. And you might say, well, it's kind of inconsequential. But now imagine something like we're talking about HIV propagating. You know, like back in the old days, people would say when you sleep with someone, you're not only sleeping with them, you're sleeping with everyone they slept with and everyone that those people slept with and so on, right? I mean, when viruses propagate, that's, that's how it works. We're still talking about network theory. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So anyway, this is a very far-reaching subject with connections to epidemiology, brain science, and actually, you know, things like corporate stuff where board, people sitting on boards of directors, the old boy network is a very important thing to understand the structure of that. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm, so we could mm-hmm. go on and on. But as you say, at heart, the math is, is the math of exponential growth. So we're talking to Stephen Strogatz. Stephen is a math applied math professor at Cornell University, renowned 
author as well, and he's got a new book out, the 2019 book, Infinite Powers. You can follow Stephen, by the way. He's a fantastic follow on Twitter, and his, his, it's, at, it's simply at Stephen Strogatz. I suggest that as a great addition to your Twitter life. Stephen, you've just, you've just connected these things that people don't usually think of as being connected, so the, how viruses move to how we make friends with who we play chess with. And so you're connecting, you're using math to not only work with things that we might think have these underlying mathematical roots, like viruses or, you know, these natural phenomena, but also social phenomena. Mm-hmm. And this is one of, the, one of the things I'd love to hear more from you about because, you know, we usually talk about sports around here. And the question is always, how can we bring a, how can we bring a model to sports and how and to what extent can math illuminate what we see happening between individuals and social interactions so you know an interesting challenge we have in 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 as we take analytics from its roots in sports which really are baseball which is a pretty simple additive team exercise oh and, oh yeah very simple Stephen, <laughs> <laughs> is the baseball guy i don't mean to diminish it it's just that we know that you know an additive model if you want to look at a team performance you can you get most of it just by adding up the individual That's, performances you I, do I, I see where you're going with the question but i want to can i just pause sure, there please. with you because that i don't know much about baseball analytics um i mean i've heard of bill james and uh but i just it's surprising to me what you just said that it's so additive because i would have thought like understanding how the shortstop behaves depends a lot on who the second baseman is that day. You know that there's there's correlations between the players and that. But but apparently that stuff is weak enough that you're telling me you can just sort of add up the value of the different players to get the value of the team. So I'll answer that because I've actually worked on this. So one of the challenges in baseball analytics is fielding and and that particular question: how do you apportion? contribution from the neighboring positions is a challenge, um, and that is one of the weaknesses. But it's probably, it's certainly first, uh, second order, maybe even third order, relative to the contributions of the individual players, either the pitchers and the batters. Mm -hmm. So if you're, so yeah, we we mess around with those problems, and they are hard, but uh, for the most part, they're secondary. Well, so what you're saying is exactly the spirit of applied math, and and it's something we learned from physicists from starting from Isaac Newton in the 1600s, but, I mean, it sounds very old when I say it that way, but for hundreds of years we've known to do just what you said, that, that there's like the first-order contribution, the dominant effect, like in the case of planets moving through the solar system, you know, you have to think about gravity. But you could say, well, there's there's gas out there in interstellar space, and there could be a little bit of friction on the planets as they move around. That'd be a very tiny second-order effect that, for traditional calculations, you can ignore, and you'll come very close to the right answer, even though... You've ignored something. You're ignoring something. Mm -hmm. So, like you said, the the interactions between the different fielders could be this second-order effect that maybe, for the first cut, you should just ignore it. Well, Stephen, that's that's where baseball is, but now we're trying to apply some of those things to other sports that that have more dependencies in Uh in individual performance. Inherent and crucial. Yeah, absolutely. And so as we move to basketball, where we have five-on-five with a lot of interactions, and then into football and soccer, where it's 11-on-11, we suspect that those interactions are much more important than second- and third-order effects. Wow. That's interesting, because the place where you're having challenges is the same place where science at large is having challenges. So tell us about that. Well, this is the subject of complex systems, which is the frontier of scientific research, at Mm -hmm. least in my area, Mm -hmm. that 
whenever the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, which is what we're talking about here, um, that goes in the jargon of, of what we call nonlinear science. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. linear is precisely what it means to, to say that the whole is exactly equal to the sum of the parts. And lots of things in physics, I mean, including very hard things like quantum physics for how atoms behave, it turns out those theories are exactly linear. And so you can get by with a lot of the techniques that you would learn in, in linear math. You may not have remembered them as being, there's a whole field called linear algebra, which we make everyone take, mm -hmm. which is a basis of machine learning that's so hot right now. Mm-hmm. But um, and data science, so there's a there's a lot you can do with linear math, and we spend most of a person's math or quantitative education, probably I'm guessing even in business school or you know in finance, that you would get a lot of stuff about eigenvalues and eigenvectors, and the statistical methods are predicated on linear thinking, and it does go very far. But once you get to nonlinear math, which is what you need to understand cooperative effects of the type we're talking about interaction effects. Um, that's math that's just being invented now. I mean, that's right. what I got excited about as a mathematician. So so my first book was called Nonlinear Dynamics and Chaos. Mm -hmm. Chaos mm -hmm. theory being one of the most famous instances of a nonlinear mm -hmm. phenomenon. So so what, what words would you give to us as we wander up to the frontier of football analytics or basketball analytics or soccer analytics, needing or at least wondering how it is, how important it is to, to, to grapple with that issue? We can do an additive thing and we can get some explanatory power. Mm -hmm. But then we have this intuition that interactions matter a lot. But, you know, in, in, in many cases, people think they see interactions where they don't really exist, and they're, and they're typically, I mean, by definition, they're not, maybe not by definition, but by preponderance, they are less important than the, than the, than the, the main effects. effects. Yep. So what advice do you, based on your work, because you've been doing this for decades, and you've mm -hmm. affiliated with Santa Fe Institute, for example, who, study, right. who study this, what advice would you give to us as we kind of wander up to the frontier and start trying to use some of these tools? Well, let me, let me ask something about what is the, the state of the art in your world because I don't honestly know, but, but in, in the Santa Fe complex systems world, or people have used so-called agent-based simulation, mm -hmm. meaning you're, I, I sort, you have like an individual player, let's say, if it were a team, and then you had some knowledge of the interactions of that player with neighboring, say we we're talking about fielders in baseball, but with football, I suppose, like the whole offensive line, you have to think about the center and the guards and the tackles. You know, how do they relate to each other? If you had some kind of data about that, is it possible? And do people run big simulations of like, uh, you know, like in finance, they'll run many scenarios. Yeah, and then yeah. they have probabilistic predictions of what's going to happen to your portfolio. Mm -hmm. Can you do a probabilistic simulation with, with uh, you know... Like, I, I, you I can. I mean, you, you, certain, you certainly can. I mean, you can model a football team and, and the way all they all interact, and you can model well, the way these you, agents. You say you can, but no, but one's, I don't think no, anyone's done no it. No one's done it. Is it any good yet? Yeah, yeah so right. One, one no. of the, I'm going to throw in a wrench into the whole system in the sense that one of the things that makes sports complicated is that we don't get to observe things precisely. There's an enormous sure. amount of randomness in in everything that you observe, and every. Yeah. So it's funny because uh, I I was a mathematician for most of my career, you know, a probabilist, and I, I've, the last 15 years I've been doing almost a, lots of applied statistics, and what has taken over my brain is the observation of variance. Yeah. I see variation everywhere, and variance <laughs> is just a, 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 is a is this wrench that makes it very hard to build mathematical models and see. Through the the noise, because you've just got this layer of of uh, 
a variance that makes it hard to see the signal. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just a very hard problem. We're all stuck on it. It's, it's facing people in economics. It's you know a field where it's really interesting is is modern biology, which until recently was sort of data limited. That they you know you could it was it was time consuming and expensive to do experiments. But now with what they call high throughput genomics, you can like completely sequence the genome of of different organisms really fast. Mm-hmm. And so there's a flood of data. Similarly, in neuroscience, you're getting tons of information about the neurons, how they're connected, the channels that you know allow chemicals to go in and out of the cell. So now we have tons of data. This is the era of big data, mm-hmm. and we're missing big theory, mm-hmm. right? We're trying mm-hmm. to keep up. With the, like, how do you make sense of this deluge of data? So I'm imagining that in sports analytics, you're probably measuring much more stuff than the old-time scouts used to measure and different variables. That's right. But that's what right. are you going to do with all that data? That, that's exactly right. And so that's, kind of, that's where we are, and I suspect there's going to be an intersection in the not-too-distant future between the methods that you're talking about and, and, and feels quite distant from sports and sports analytics, especially in these, these, these sports with, where interactions are very important and we have 22 guys in the field and, it's, and we need new techniques as the data get finer and finer and bigger and bigger. Yeah, well, I think that, that could be, I'm not answering your question directly because I think the truth is no one knows the answers to these questions, but, but people in many different fields are scratching their heads about the same thing mm-hmm. and, and talking to them could be a good idea. I'll just give you one example of where it really paid off. Mm-hmm. And I mean really paid off, which was that um, you've probably heard about a hedge fund called Renaissance. Sure. Or mm-hmm. the company Renaissance and their medallion fund. Yeah, so Jim Simons is from my world of, of math. And when I, one time when I was visiting them, you know, behind the fence and talking to the guys I had gone to grad school with, and like now they're all working for him and they're multimillionaires or more, um, I asked them, what do you like to hire? What kind of person do you want to hire to do the work you do? And they said, we find that the sweet spot is astrophysics, which surprised <laughs> really? me. Yeah. Because they said, if you hire a mathematician, they're not used to really working with, with actual dirty data. Mm-hmm. If you hire a person with background in finance or economics, I don't mean to insult anyone with what I'm going to say. This is just what they said to me. They've been, they've been polluted with wrong theories. Ah, interesting. Okay, okay, so what you want is a guy or a woman that is an astrophysicist because they're, they're smart in quantitative stuff like a physicist. But the, the particular subfield of astrophysics has data that has come, you know, light coming from distant stars going through the atmosphere. Right. So it hits a telescope. It gets corrupted by all this turbulence in the atmosphere and clouds and noise. So it's kind of like noisy data in finance. Wow. But you've still got these quantitative people who can program computers, who know all advanced math, but they're not scared of real noisy data. Right, right, right. So they like to hire astrophysicists. Although the people they hired was the entire speech recognition group at IBM. Excellent. Right. Excellent <laughs> point. And that's another uh, one of these interesting complex systems. Mm-hmm. You know, human perception and all the tricky rules of language. and mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. So, so I'm thinking maybe the best advice I could give in sports analytics is to... Um, broaden the net, like don't just look for people with backgrounds in statistics or finance or something. I don't know where you would normally hire people, but but I think you may want to be talking to some physicists and some astrophysicists. Yeah, that's interesting. Neuroscientists. Yep, yep. That's great. Know. That's great. You know, and there have been, there are, I'm sure there are teams that have hired some of those folks. Sam Hinkie had a, a crazy multidisciplinary group when he was the general manager here 
with the 76er. But you've also mentioned the simulation idea, which is an interesting direction to take it. And that's a bigger conversation. Would love to just unpack that with you at some point. But this idea that maybe an agent-based simulation, you could imagine deploying that for soccer, for example. And I, could, I, I think that's something that teams will probably be thinking about in the, in the, in the near future. Listen, Stephen, we're going to have to let you go. This has been delightful. We really appreciate you giving us this time this morning. And we wish you the best with your work and also the book that's just come out. Thanks very much. It was a pleasure. Absolutely. That was Stephen Strogatz. You can follow him at Stephen Strogatz on Twitter. He is the Jacob Gould Sherman Professor of Applied Math at Cornell. He's a renowned teacher of math. He's also a highly cited mathematician doing the work out there. New book. His new book is called Infinite Powers, How Calculus Reveals the Secrets of the Universe. In the, in the opening of that book, he quotes Richard Feynman as saying, calculus is the language God talks, meaning it's underneath this creation that we're surrounded by. And so to understand why things work and to change the way things work and to predict what's going to happen, you need an understanding of the underlying language. So it's a neat, it's a neat, and he, because he's an applied mathematician, the book goes into many illustrations of the role of math and how it's moving things around us that you may not appreciate. So it's a book that we can recommend, Infinite Powers by Stephen Strogatz. Again, Stephen is up at Cornell. You can follow him on Twitter at Stephen Strogatz. That has been the second quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddy, Adi Weiner, longtime faculty colleague and collaborator here. Shane and Eric are out and about. They'll be back. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You guys can join the conversation. Please do. Give us a shout. 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Or drop us an email, businessradio at crsxm.com. Or hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyBall. Is our handle there, at WMoneyBall. Hey, before we roll into the next segment, let's talk a little bit about that last segment. Steven Strogatz, famed mathematician and author Stephen Strogatz. How, how was that? I thought that Terrific. Was, I, could, I wanted him for another half hour. <laughs> Stephen, just stick around, man. Let's keep talking about this stuff. So, I mean, there's a lot to talk about, but um, quickly, it, I'm struck by his first thought in terms of applying the tools of chaos and complexity to professional sports or college sports or sports in general. He said, hey, does anybody do any agent-based simulation? And that's really intriguing because it's it's a very valuable tool for understanding markets and some other you know, applications where there's very complex behavior. Can't, can, could you imagine? I mean, it's beyond what we do, but could you imagine that that would be productive for understanding what happens with 22 players on a field, whether it's American football or European football? I can imagine. I mean, this is what this new data bowl contest and all this availability of these tracking data is supposed to try to unpack because mm-hmm. that, that gives you every position of every player on the field, the ball, mm-hmm. and then you can try to run simulations and start to model what's happening with 22 mm-hmm. players simultaneously, and there's no one who has done that. That could be very interesting. I mean, some of the some of the the results are, you know, these two combinations of roots are more productive than these two, and these are the questions we don't even have any idea right, about. Right. Well, I, I, need to, I need to hear more about what happens when you use this agent-based simulation. Like, basically, you, you want to... A, you want to model it, and then you learn something from what you model. And so it's this kind of interesting process. But at any rate, Stephen Strogatz was fantastic to talk to. He's got a brand new book out called Infinite Powers. It's a book we can recommend. I think it's always worth 
uh, listening to applied mathematicians because they have the rigor of math, but then they're interested in the dirty real world. Yeah, I mean, it's, and it also needs to be quite you know understood that it's quite distinct from statistics. You know, I was I was a pure mathematician as a college student, and thought I was doing something, when I moved over to statistics, I thought I was doing something like applied math, but it's actually not. It's a totally different subject. How would you distinguish the two? Well, uh, applied math is really the application of math sort of broadly. I mean, it's just problems inspired directly by applications, um, but there, it doesn't deal with probability. It mm-hmm. doesn't deal with variance. It doesn't deal with randomness mm-hmm. and, and statistics. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up doing you know, work that was really more pure mathematics, but in, in, a, in a probabilistic setting, which, is, it, which opens the door much more closely to applications in randomized situations. Yep, 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 um, yep. And that's really the key. Statistical forces is just reverse of probability. So you observe the data, and then you want to figure out what the model is that generated right, it. Right, right, right. All right. Well, listen, let's change gears now and grab our second guest. Delighted to have John Wirtz. In this segment, John is the chief product officer at Huddle. He's also the co-founder of that company. Back in 20, 20, 2006, they founded this thing. If you haven't heard of Huddle, that's because you're not quite enough of a recruit, Nick, in football, but actually they're going far beyond football recruiting. We're going to hear about what they're doing at Huddle in the next half hour. Good morning, John. Welcome to the show. Good morning, guys. Thanks for having me. Deli- delighted to have you. Where are you calling in from this morning? I'm calling in from, I'm actually in Omaha. We're based in Lincoln, Nebraska. That's where I live. I'm in Omaha, Nebraska today at a SEC conference here at Creighton University. But ah, all right. Based in Nebraska. Well, d- appreciate your calling in from over there. We heard that you guys are founded out of Nebraska. We want to hear a little bit more of that founding story. Um, we're delighted to have you. We we thought about you. Adi and I, we're, it just happens to be that we're the two folks co-hosting the show today, but it, but that's that's just by chance. But he and I are, Adi and I are working on a project where we need to understand something about the evolution of technology in college football recruiting. And and that's not the conversation for today necessarily, but you're the first people we thought about. It's like, Huddle, I've got these nephews who've played football out in West Texas over the last few years, and I, I discovered, because I wouldn't have known otherwise, that all these all these players these days have their Huddle account, and yep. they've got their highlights, and I could I could dial you guys up and watch my nephew as a running back or my other nephew as a defensive lineman, even though they're like 3A football in West Texas. And it was brilliant. Yeah. And I know that that's become an important tool in college football recruiting. And so we wanted to reach out and hear from you guys. But as soon as we start looking into we realize you've gone far beyond that. So we're, we would just love to hear about what Huddle's up to these days. I told my nephews I had you guys on. They're like, oh, my God, the guy's a legend. They're game changers. They're very excited about the fact <laughs> that, that you what, what you're doing. So, John, tell us a little bit about the origins of Huddle to get us started. Sure. So I founded the company with my co-founders, David and Brian. Uh, we went to college together here at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. Uh, we are in an honors program called the, the Rake School, um, which combines computer science and business together. It's kind of like 50-50 computer science and business. So um, through that program, we got hands-on. We worked with a lot of real companies real, on real projects, spent five years together in school doing our undergrad and then our MBAs. And we knew we wanted to start something up together, but the right idea hadn't come along until the very end of that fifth year, um, David, one of my co-founders, worked at the athletic department for four years of his college career and got exposed to what was happening with the, the Nebraska football team and saw really just the kind of extreme inefficiency going on with the football team. So they were burning hundreds of DVDs literally a week, handing them out to all the players and then collecting mm. some of those DVDs back that they could. So I'm not reburning another hundred every week and sending them back out. And that was with practice oh. footage, oh, really? scout footage. Okay. Um, they're printing scouting reports and game plans that were these thick 
color copy binders every week, same thing, collecting them, throwing them away, redoing it. Okay. And we actually happened to be roommates with Zach Taylor uh, that uh, for a year while we were living up there. He was the quarterback at Nebraska at the time. And so we got to hear firsthand from him how tough it was for him to digest all this, this stuff. Um, a lot of it was just, you know, wasted time. And so we came to Nebraska and put a prototype together and showed them a way that we thought they could a lot more efficiently share this video. They could do it all digitally. You know, they could tie it together with the playbook digitally, and the coaches could add their voice, could add illustration to the video, right. and could track who was watching what to actually see who was, who was viewing these cut-ups and um, games oh, oh, and practice wow. footage okay. they were sharing out. And it, the coaches absolutely loved the concept. Um, coach Callahan was the coach at the time, and he had been out in Oakland with the Raiders and said he had got pitched you know, in Silicon Valley on every concept you could imagine. And um, this was the first time he had gotten pitched something that felt like it really was aimed at their real problems. So oh, that, wow. Okay. That was exciting to us. And so we said, Nebraska, if you'll be our first customer, we want to start a company around this. We want to really build something um, that could change the world of sport. And mm-hmm. Nebraska got behind us, and that that's how it got started. And the core of the company is still the same today. Our, our mission is we help teams and athletes win. And really the value prop, why people come to Huddle, is we help them capture, help them understand, and help them share video. Mm-hmm at the core of everything we do mm-hmm. at every level of sports. And then if you fast forward um, a couple years into the company, we realized high school sports and youth sports had the same problems. Uh, plus they had coaches that were teachers, parents, you know, had a million other things going on while they were trying to coach. And they were trying to do things with video to help in the coaching process and struggling with it. So we took the system we built for Nebraska that was used by the Jets at the time and a bunch of other Division One teams, and we made it totally hosted, pulled all the data and video up into Amazon, made it work in your web browser, and brought the price down from about $50,000 a year to $800 a year as the starting point. And uh-huh. things really took off with high schools. And we ramped up from 12 high schools that first year in 2008 to 350 to 2000. And within about five years, we were working with about 90% of high school American football teams in the country. Wow. Um, so let's start expanding into basketball. Let's start with that because that's that because that was such a popular product and one of the first you were known for and one that many listeners may have come across in some way or even you might have just heard people refer to huddle. Just talk a little bit more about that, because I think the technology itself is kind of surprisingly um, it's surprising that you could that you could scale mm-hmm. something like that because it feels so manually intensive. So. Again, let's, I mean, I don't mean to reason too much from my own experience, but I think it is a pretty common experience. A, 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 high, a, a, a random high school football player, maybe a big school, maybe not a big school, wants his highlights. And he might want them to share with the school t- who might be interested in recruiting him, but he might also just want him for his own consumption right. and to share with friends and family. And you've, my, my memory of it was, and this has been a few years, is that you would bubble that player, you know, so somehow you identify that player for every time he's on the field, or at least the highlights of his of his performance. How did you make that happen? I mean, what is the technology behind that, and then what's progressed since then? Yeah, so when we started, it was really um, you know all these football teams were already filming, uh, recording, but um, the video was often just sitting on the camera or getting burned to a DVD. So we made a system where they could plug their camera in. Our software would help them pull that video off the camera, automatically chop it up into plays for them upload it into the cloud and then allow the whole coaching staff to go in and break down that film together. So they could all be sitting having their morning coffee Saturday morning before you know, the craziness of Saturday kicks in for a for football team. Mm-hmm. And they each coach was breaking down their part of the game. So, you know, the offensive coach is going in, putting in offensive data on each play okay. through our system. Kind of imagine like an Excel spreadsheet essentially in the cloud. Wait, so they're let- breaking down each clip. 
So let me just say, just uh, unpack this. So the individual's team would film it. Your software yep. would recognize the plays, or would you have indi- you would, would you farm this out to individuals to look at it and break it up? Um, so we would recognize the beginning and end of the plays, so we could cut it into clips for wow. them. So okay. at least they had that piece. So you do there was and image recognition. I mean, how did you do yeah. this? What was the technique? Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, we looked for yeah image recognition. In some cases, just the start and stops of the camera would would kind of media uh, the media timestamps on the the video right. itself would tell us what we needed. In some cases, back in the day, they were ripping a lot of DVDs that they had traded, you know, with an opponent, and so we would use uh, computer vision and image recognition to see when. You know, the, the footage broke between plays, and we would snip it there for them, which uh, saved a lot of time. And then you would have – and the uh, coaches yeah. themselves would do the, the annotating. Right. They would watch it and figure yeah, out what's happening. Then, yeah, a lot of times it was like the junior varsity coach or the freshman coach's job to go in there uh, Friday night or Saturday morning um, or, you know, Saturday night, Sunday morning for college teams, and they would be tagging, you know, the information that it's an offensive play, down distance, gain and loss, what was the formation, what was the play, and then who was on the field, so who threw the ball, who ran the ball, who – who caught the ball, who made the tackle. Um, and so all that information was getting entered a lot faster because they could divide and conquer as a staff. Right. If you fast forward to today, now we're rolling out one of our new products is a, a camera system that teams can mount at their facility that automatically follows the action, automatically captures the video. Um, and now we're using much more machine learning, artificial intelligence, and a team of analysts that we have that are based around the world that are tagging that video on behalf of our teams. So when they wake up the next morning, it's already completely tagged with all the key information from the game. Um, so they dig right in and they can start going either deeper into their analysis or they can start looking at reports and start building their John, how, for the team. John, how do you have the capacity to code all the high school football that happens in the United States on a Friday night? <laughs> well, we have a team of, uh, our team is largely based in India that does the analysis itself and it's a team of about 1,300 people full-time that oh are just gosh. breaking down right. so, games for uh, football, for basketball, for soccer, for lacrosse. Okay. For ice hockey now. So, so we actually we interviewed the founder of Crossover um, some years back, who was yeah. actually a Penn graduate, and that was his essentially introduction yeah, to basketball. Mm-hmm. Basu, yeah, and he yeah. sold his company. I don't know, um, but I remember when you, we mentioned the word huddle to him, he his face got all rumbly. <laughs> um, and <laughs> yeah. um, but he did this yeah. with basketball. I guess his his innovation was essentially to do that to farm this out to to just the thousands of you know workers out there in MTurk yeah. land to do this and it turned out for basketball it was it was the most efficient way to do this and so you you you're doing this as well um mostly in India yeah. um I, I, we wonder yeah. whether or not eventually that would just be done automatically that's what we're working towards but the beauty of our model is we're doing it manual heavy today uh, but we're starting to apply more and more machine learning and computer vision to the process and we think the the move's not going to be all of a sudden one day it's just going to be you know done automatically and you guys you guys know that it's not that's not how things progress what will happen is we will augment more and more of what our team's doing speed them up more and more right. improve the quality and eventually we think you know in the next it'll be in within the next couple of years um, it will be ninety five percent automated and our team will be doing more quality control and more of the more kind of slightly more subjective or trickier objective analysis and the basics like. A three-point shot happened, a two-point shot happened, a rebound, right. or you know, in football that it was a pass or a run, the down and distance, that'll all be done um, automatically. We're mm-hmm. also pulling in things like scoreboard feeds as well off the video. It's oh, really? Doing um, you know character recognition off the scoreboard to, to pull another data feed into the mix, which which tells you a lot, especially in, a, in football around you know just down and distance, the yard line. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, interesting yeah. way to get that information. Right, right, right. You, yeah. Rather than having the people enter it. We're talking to John Wirtz. John is the chief product officer at Huddle. He co-founded the company with two of his classmates back in 20, 
2006, coming out of the University of Nebraska, the Nebraska football team was their first client and kind of the inspiration for it. Interesting that it goes back to Nebraska. We had, uh, we, we should dig out the details on this. It's been a good few years now, maybe three years or so, that we talked to a, a grad student, I believe, at the University of Nebraska who was working with the football team, doing analytics with the football team. We don't have as much visibility into the analytics that happen in college football as we do in professional football and i think it varies a great deal but this was one of the first folks that we talked to who's actually doing analytics on the ground for a college football team and he was one of the first because it was it a was few years ago no no it was, it was nebraska but for sure the university i mean we may have may have had somebody i haven't had somebody from northwest yep. we had this nebraska guy so there's multiple connections back to the famed cornhusker program by the way you guys are supposed to be on the way back now you must be excited, yeah. Scott Frost. We're getting there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone's pumped about Chris Frost, and uh, you know, last season he's getting his foot, his feet underneath him. I think we're we're excited to see what happens. This mm-hmm. Season. Mm-hmm. Well, it's fun to have. You know, college football is just better when um, Nebraska's got its got its game on. So we're we're glad to have <laughs> you back. Plus, man. that man, we need to give Wisconsin some competition over there in the Big Ten West. Okay, back to Huddle's you. business. Huddle, by the way, for those who don't know. They, it's, it's H-U-D-L. They go by H-U-D-L, and you can follow them. Great, great follow on Twitter. It's just at Huddle, H-U-D-L. And we're talking to John Wirtz, the chief product officer. You Just real quickly, again, on the, on, the, on the spread of this thing, it starts with high school football, really, and it goes, you say, over five years from just a few schools for, in 2008 to 90% of high school football programs. Could you also track how colleges were using that information for their recruiting purposes? Or is that something that you observe directly or, or how do you know anything about that side of it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. We follow it really closely. Um, and so we, we would track, we liked looking at the number of um, recruits that huddle was a part of their process. And by the time we got to around 2016, 2015, we were at over 95%. And now we're at, essentially 100% yeah. of football recruits um, going to college or interested in college that huddle is a part of the process what for is, the college evaluating them. What does it mean to be a part of the process by which a college evaluates them? Um, yeah, at the most basic level, they're watching their profile. Like you guys have, you mentioned, you know, huddle links get posted into recruiting forums. and So they're watching just their public profile, mm-hmm. watching their highlights, usually you know shared to them by the athlete or by the athlete's high school coach. Mm-hmm. But now we've got all pretty much all the power five conferences um, purchase our huddle recruit product, which allows them to search the entire database of high school athletes, um, see varying degrees of information, depending on what the athlete is comfortable sharing, but search our entire database of athletes proactively so that they can not just watch the highlights, but they can see all the the games on that athlete, uh, more information about the athlete. A lot of our athletes are sharing, um, you know, academic awards, athletic awards, academic information, that kind of, so 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 that database now kind of powers powers a lot of recruiting so, yep. so if i'm if i'm in alabama and i'm looking for someone that will have no chance of seeing in person because they don't live anywhere near me how would huddle make this facilitate my potentially yeah. recruiting this this player say from california yeah so the staff there and where it really comes in for them is being able to look at athletes earlier in their career so they, they're able to look at freshmen and sophomores in a lot more depth than oh wow in the okay past. So they can pull up so our database. They can search freshmen. So they can put in things like, yeah, I want to look at freshmen tight ends who are over six foot two, um, over this amount of weight that have a GPA over a three point five in California, and we they will instantly get a list of exactly those athletes, and then they can start watching that game footage, watching the highlight footage. Um, 
do you, you have know, any any that. like uh, performance stats that you're able to collect? For example, you know, in, in baseball, the big number for a pitcher would be how fast you're throwing. Is there an equivalent in yes. football that you can you can toss in the mix here? Right now, they're all entered by the athlete or the athlete's high school coach, but we do collect things like um, bench press max forty times, mm-hmm. kind of all the things oh, that you interesting. Would imagine. Okay, we're working on trying to find ways to get even more more validated information, you know, from a third party or verified via video and using computer vision to kind of validate a 40 time, for example. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, So that's some stuff that we're experimenting with um, or bringing in things like track and field times, which is something that I know a lot of college recruiters are interested in because it gives them a validated, you know, going to the state high school track website and seeing how those athletes perform if they, Mm -hmm. if they're on the track team Mm -hmm. as well. So John, we're talking about football recruiting, which obviously serves high school programs, both the athletes and the programs themselves very well, and college, because you're providing service to the colleges. But you guys have expanded your services and your portfolio to include other, to service other clientele. And so in what way are you doing? What, how are you bringing value to additional, not just across sports within like high school and college, but like you've, you've got a professional suite now. What else are you doing for yeah. teams besides facilitating this recruiting process? Yeah, we work with, so from kind of end to end when they're using video and data as a team. So we think about it as really three main areas. One is the recruiting side. The other is their own self, self-analysis, self-study. So that's watching their own games and their practice and training. They're using our tool set to power that. Okay. Um, and then the, the other one is opponent scouting. So um, at the professional levels, we work with all of the English Premier League, uh, almost all of the Bundesliga, almost all of La Liga, uh, over 70% of World Cup teams, um, so if you kind of go down the list, uh, all of the NBA except for one team, so 29 out of 30 in the NBA, they're all using us not just for the recruiting and scouting side and building their talent pipeline, but also for analyzing all of their own games, their own practices and training sessions, and scouting their upcoming opponents. Hold on, John. This is ridiculous. I had no idea. How, how did you get ahead of everybody else in that? So you're saying – I mean, maybe they have contracts with multiple providers, but you've just said, for example, the NBA, 29 out of 30 teams are using you – to self-scout yep. or to scout opponents. I would have thought you had a lot of competition there, and I wouldn't have necessarily expected Huddle to be at the top of that queue. Yeah, one big step forward we took there is we acquired a company in 2015 called Sports Tech based out of Sydney, Australia. And they had a product called Sports Code that's now really kind of the cornerstone product for us at the elite level. And you could think about it kind of like um, the flexibility that like a Microsoft Excel gives you where you can script and really go, you know, get into the code behind a spreadsheet and code up really custom things. Mm-hmm. Sports code allows teams to go build their own custom coding or tagging panels where they can tag exactly the data they want. They can write their own custom reports off that data and then they can capture multiple angles of say up to eight angles of video all into that system. And then on top of all of that, they can do it live during the game. So all of that data can be captured and reported on and viewed as the game is happening, and that's what that's what Sports Code allows. Um, we've now connected Sports Code into Huddle in the cloud, so that all the stuff they're doing in Sports Code flows up into the cloud and can be shared with the whole team and accessed from anywhere. But that Sports Code engine is really powerful, and that's what's used by the vast majority of elite sports teams around the world. Got it, got it, got it. Well, that sounds like a a, a, a fantastic acquisition. When did you get this? Is sports Tech? You said Australian company Sports Tech. You acquired. When was that? Yeah. That was in 2015, and that was okay. really kind of our as our second acquisition globally, and that was that gave us kind of 14 offices around the globe, um, expanded our team pretty significantly, and, and really catapulted us into the elite space. And now we've been 
we've been doubling and tripling down on that investment over the last four years. And we now work with 150,000 teams globally. Um, you know, the who's who of elite sport are using us and we're, you know, we're working on expanding our services and, and what we do with all those teams. Well, let's talk about that. What are you worried about? What are you working on now? And we saw in, a, in an article posted recently that you've just received $30 million in funding. People do that not only to get a part of somebody, but also to fuel growth. Where, where, what is the challenge for you guys right now? What is hard? What are you trying to push out? Um, yeah, so uh, camera systems is a big part of the future that we see. So we're investing heavily in our own camera system. The product's called Huddle Focus. And it's a kind of think of it as almost like a, we want it to feel like this magic box you just put on the wall of your gym or fasten onto the side of your press box, aim it towards the field, and it automatically turns on when your game starts, captures your game automatically, follows the action, sends that all up to Huddle Live. Um, and then we're working on speeding up our analyst process, that team that's 1,300 analysts that are breaking down the video, mm-hmm. so that everything starts to happen in real time. So between the camera system and what we're doing around tagging and analyzing the video, we know the future is real time. Um, and so we're using machine learning, ex- speeding up the way video flows through the system. Every part of our system is receiving investment right now to get mm-hmm. it moving faster and faster so that you're never you, waiting on that analysis. Yep. Are you thinking of adding multiple cameras and start competing for the tracking space? Um, we, we've thought about that. and our, our main focus isn't around kind of multi-camera tracking, but we think, and we've proven out with some prototypes and some early betas, that there's a lot of tracking you can do with one camera or even just a couple cameras. Mm-hmm. So we think the, the future of tracking actually will be a lot more ubiquitous and our focus with tracking is really starting around the competitive level, so high school and club sports, and then we we will we'll move it up from there. And uh, we're taking a different a different approach to tracking, and trying to make it accessible to every team, not mm-hmm. just right. Right. Just yeah, that's interesting. Well, you know, that's a it's a it's a different kind of problem. You guys have used technology and labor so far mostly, and and but I mean by technology is like software, but now this is some hardware. Yeah. So wh- how do you right. how does a, a thoughtful new firm like yourself go about integrating a hardware part of your business yeah we always said we would never get into hardware um but the camera potential just became so high and uh, when we looked at partnering and what else we could do around cameras we we felt like we had an angle on how to build a really affordable camera a really powerful camera that is different than what we saw everyone else doing in the market Um, so that's what really inspired us to take that step We've been building instant replay systems for American football teams, uh, which involved hardware, uh, these kits that we would send them that would let them plug their cameras in and get access to the video on iPads on the side of the field. Um, we weren't, it was a lot of kind of off the shelf hardware that we were putting together. Okay. Um, but it did, it did help us get our feet underneath us on what it takes to order hardware and, you know, build it, ship it, yep. deal with returns, all of that. The camera is a big step forward because we're building it from scratch, really from the ground up, but. What it really allows us to do is have this compute power and at the edge where we've got all these pixels available to us with multiple sensors on the camera. So we can do some awesome things inside the camera that you just can't – it's really tough to do in the cloud because you just can't send that much data oh. up to the cloud very very easily on the, the networks that are at these you know, stadiums or out on these high school fields. That's interesting. Give uh, us an example so, of something that you can do – you can process there at input as opposed to after you've transmitted it. Yeah, so we've got – three sensors right now on the camera that are above 4k in terms of resolution so we can take all of that resolution coming off those sensors and do things like jersey recognition and player identification in a more effective way 
so that we know, you know, not only did a shot happen here, but who took the shot and was it off the dribble or catch and shoot and where, which way were they facing before they took the shot? That kind of information yeah. where you really want as rich of a set of pixels as you can um, to do that and to be able to do it in, you know, in real time on the camera. How about uh, high speed? Action. Are you also looking at sort of these edgetronics or these rapid uh, velocity cameras that take many, many pictures per second and then you can track the ball and tell you how fast it's moving? Yeah, that's really, it's really interesting to us. We haven't put as much of an emphasis on baseball, softball, cricket, some of those sports uh, yet. Um, so since our focus has been more around the big team sports of mm-hmm. soccer, football, basketball, volleyball, um, 120 frames a second or even 60 frames a second uh, gives us a lot of richness sure. in those sports. But we know as we start to move into baseball, softball, um, a lot of sports that are technique heavy, even you know, uh, diving, gymnastics, track and field, mm-hmm. um, we're going to need to figure out how to get that, that frame rate up. But yeah, that hasn't been our, our sweet spot. And I definitely, we have a lot of admiration for what those companies are doing around super high speed mm-hmm. video and, and cameras. This is terrifically interesting. Before we go, tell us a little bit more about what the team looks like there in Nebraska. How big are you guys now? How are you organized? What's the what's the environment like? You know, we hear about technological advances and startups. They're usually not in Nebraska. So tell it. Give us a sense of what it's like over there. Yeah, we're really proud to be based in Nebraska. We got to see the startup community grow kind of from scratch almost as we've come up since 2006. Um, the Haymarket area where we're based in in Nebraska is this nice, dense, booming kind of startup hub mm-hmm. here in the Midwest. Um, our team there is we have 400 people based in Lincoln, about 50 people based in Omaha. Um, we have 2,100 people globally uh, on the team now mm-hmm. that are, are working kind of across all of our offices. Mm-hmm. But our headquarters is there in Lincoln, and that's the heart of heart of the company. And, and we're really seeing the, the startup scene take off. Having the university right there right. in a nice, vibrant downtown mm-hmm. and then a nice, dense environment where every, everybody's kind of walkable to each other. So there's lots of collisions, lots of coffee shop collisions. Uh, it makes for a really great environment. So I think I think over the next five years, you're going to see Lincoln, Nebraska continue to grow as a a nice little hotbed in the Silicon Prairie. Yes. Silicon Prairie. <laughs> Silicon Listen, Prairie. I, I have it. to tell you, I'm impressed yeah. that uh, the university has a uh, computer science business undergraduate yeah, major. How about that? How about that? Not only they have it, they had yeah. it 13 years ago. Yep, These yep. guys were 20 yeah, years ago. Really, These guys really did have it. been a pioneer in that space. That program is, is pretty fantastic. We hire every single graduate we can get in that program. Um, Wharton, that. Has, Wharton has had an M&T program since the 70s, I think. M&T, M&T Management and Technology. Mm-hmm. So it's essentially yeah. that, uh, that, but it's been very, very small and hard to get into, but these right. are the masters of the universe. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Listen, yeah. John, yeah, thanks Thanks again for the time, man. It's super exciting work you're doing. We wish you guys the best with it, and we hope to talk with you more down the road. Yeah, my pleasure. I love the show. Thanks for what you guys are doing for the analytics space, spreading the word. Pre- it. Appreciate it. Thank that you. was John Wirtz, Chief Product Officer at Huddle. Huddle was co-founded back in 2006, three graduates from the University of Nebraska. They have moved from helping high school kids get recruited to servicing, among other things, the English Premier League and the entire NBA. Exciting conversation with John Wirtz there at Huddle. You can follow them at Huddle, H-U-D-L, at H-U-D-L, if you want to see more from their Twitter feed. So, by the way, so I don't know if you had an intuition for this. I did not. It's I think that the average speed on his record-breaking run, was 23 miles an hour, I think. The average, That's which the is, average which is over the distance meters. over time, yes. 
But, you know, they start out from a dead stop. And so you could imagine that the peak is very different from the average. Would you have any intuition? Would you have had, it's hard to say after the fact now, what the peak would be for, if the average across 100 meters was 23, what do you think the peak speed was? Because they can measure this now. Well, I know the answer. I mean, Usain Bolt's peak speed was 27 miles per hour. But I remember as a kid when when I was, you know, was fascinated by records. I used to pore over the Guinness Book of World Records. 25 miles per hour was considered the top speed of a human being. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Oh, wow. Which just, it's extremely fast. Right. And this is significantly higher than that. Yeah. Did you see the, did you, we should have had this clip around. Did you see this goal that Bolt scored in his soccer match the other day? There was, there, people said, ah, his speed won't translate very much. And there's this play where he's on the defensive end of the pitch and they gain possession of the ball. And the first thing he does is just, he just bolts at his, at his top speed down the middle of the field to the other side. And they start advancing the ball. And he's just flying past one guy after the other. They advance the ball. And by the time he gets to the, you know, to, to within striking distance, he's the only guy out there to get the ball over to him and he scores the goal. And it was just him sprinting, literally sprinting from one end of the field to the other because nobody else could keep up. Could, yeah, it's, it's really remarkable. I don't know how often he can so do something So is he actually like trying that. to play soccer professionally? What's his, what is this? This I've never heard of this. I, I knew that he had some soccer interests. He's not playing at a high level, but he is playing He is playing organized soccer at, I believe, a professional level. Plus, it's a great draw. Who doesn't want to go? Oh, my God. And, and you, give that, you give him that kind of highlight. So we have a caller. We have Mike from Alabama. Welcome to the show, Mike. Good morning, gentlemen. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Thanks for calling. Question. You bet. I have one baseball question and one uh, fantasy football question. The baseball question is the Phillies fired their hitting coach who was heavily immersed in analytics and feeding uh, players a lot of analytical information. And then they have been in a bit of a tailspin and they rehired as their hitting coach, their manager. Former manager, yeah. Charlie Manuel. And I was wondering what that does organizationally when you send that kind of message. Is it uh, when you're trying to drive an analytic culture like the Phillies have been since they hired Matt Klintak, um, if that sets the program back or if it's just because of the end of the year, people understand and they'll be able to get momentum again. So uh, on the basis of analytics, I wondered if you could. It yeah, let us let that. us jump on let's jump on that. Audi might have some I have a general answer to it. Audi might have details on on the Phillies themselves. Well, I mean, I know that the 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 Phillies have since I mean, have in the last few years greatly expanded their analytics presence. They've hired um They've grown, yeah. but I mean, on the field, there's a big gap in in sports between what you're doing in the in the back rooms and what the players are doing on the field. And what's happened in baseball is that gap has been closing as the coaches have bridged it. It's clear that it's not always happening in every organization, and <laughs> yeah, right. uh, and that's where I'm going to turn it over to Kate, who understands organizationally how these things work much more much more in depth than well, I do. I, we are, I think you're pointing at. I mean. It, 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 I would take it as a very bad sign. I have no inside knowledge on it in particular, but I would take it as a very bad sign because critical to this effort, analytics effort in professional sports is alignment at every level of the organization. And when you don't have the alignment, it kind of doesn't matter. Even if it's not, it, it, a lot of folks have a team of analysts and they're not doing anything. Even if you have the team of analysts and somebody advancing their cause and supporting them, that's not enough. You need you need, a, you need, you need most people. You need it at multiple mm-hmm. levels, and the thing is, that's hard to get. That is a that is a scarce resource given 
the the history and the culture against it. And so when you're seeing that kind of resistance even publicly, then it's a bad sign of I would I would take it. I would take it as a strongly bad sign. So you said you had a fantasy football question as well. I'm going to be even less informed about that one, but let's see what you got. By the way, Mike, why are you talking about fantasy football? You're in Alabama. You've got real college football happening in like 15 minutes. Well, I grew up in Philly. I grew up as a Penn State fan, Ah. more of a basketball fan. Okay. uh, Okay. So, well, let's hear what you got. um, So people are picking their teams now, drafting their teams. And I was wondering, trying to combine a little economics and analytics does it make sense to not draft players on the same team, like say the quarterback and wide receiver, because you want to diversify your portfolio of players or, or does it make sense to go for the highest valued uh, possible, even though they might be on the same team? So I, Adi and I, yeah, it's a great question. Um, It has applications in finance. Yeah. There's Adi and and I will have an answer based on first principles, I think, even though neither one of us are fantasy people. But we can we can take a stab at it. Of course, I, you know, rules vary greatly across leagues, and we're going to answer this naively and ap- with apologies if we don't have the knowledge. But we have a strong position, I suspect. Adi? Well, I mean, essentially, uh, there's a, a trade-off between mean and variance. I mean, so if you're looking for a high-variance strategy, then you often want to pull people from the same team because they because they'll correlate and so the variance of the sum is the sum of the variance plus this correlation of this covariance term and that that and that can reduce the variance or it it can increase it it typically increase increases in this case case it will increase it because we know individual performance on a team is highly correlated but Adi, you said you said if you want a high variance strategy and this is critical. Why might you want a high variance? Right. Strategy? So, so if you're playing with a lot of a lot of a lot of opponents and you want to win, you don't want to come in second or third. Mm-hmm. You want to win. High variance strategies are the strategies to use. You're only going to get there by That's right. by taking a high variance strategy and then getting lucky. That's absolutely because you're just as likely to be in the bottom if you try that. So, and so what, when you play that way. If, particularly if you you um, if you want to take some risky bets, that's the way to that's the way to win a tournament. And now, we talk about this in golf; but, it's a but huge application. It's and it's more relevant the bigger the field. Essentially, that's right. Now, a lot of people play fantasy with a group of five or six friends, and so it may not be relevant. And in that case, I think your intuition is exactly right that you're going to you may not want that variance, and if, and and often you don't. Often you want to diversify, and that's that's the portfolio theory. It's the hallmark of modern finance. And for diversification in fantasy football, it, the spreading players around different teams would be a, would be one of the most important ways to do it. You got it. All right, Mike from Alabama. Appreciate that phone call. Uh, what about Thanks, football? Jeff. What? Thank you, Mike. What about football, Audie? What are you thinking about? We know you're kind of warming to it more every year. We do this. Your Jets? Well, are you are you fired I'm, up? About- I'm fired up about the Jets. Fired up about the Eagles. But let me. Here's my question. I'll throw out to you. One of the things that we've been tracking in football for a number of years is the implementation of a whole bunch of new ideas to football and whether they're actually getting used. So, for example, you know, there's there's uh, the fourth down. We And well, I track that. The fourth down's not a new idea. What it's not a new about? idea, but it's new to the Hold field. On, what, what are you saying? So, so the correct decision on fourth down. Okay. That's just... So what, we, what we've observed, and this has been tracked, and we talked about this a little over the summer, is that certain teams are going for it much more frequently on fourth downs and others are not. And even the best teams are still nowhere close to what we might call analytically optimal. But that's starting to happen. What other, what might we be seeing this year on the field 
that is analytics informed? Is it going to be something that we're going to watch? So, you know, example in baseball, as you know, I've been talking about the opener for many years. A couple of years ago, the Tampa Bay Rays started, and now everybody's doing it. Mm-hmm. What do we got? Is that, in football? Is that true? It's amazing. Everybody. The doing Yankees it? are doing it in almost every fourth game. Adi, two years ago, you seemed like a crazy person, howling right. to the wind. Mm-hmm. Honestly, you did. And yet you're telling me everyone's doing this now? Yep. Wow. Are people complaining a lot? There's some grumbling, but it's not being <laughs> used exactly the way I would have, the way, the way I recommended, but sometimes used as bullpenning rather than actually op, op, an opener and then having a, the starter. They even have a name for it. I forget what the term is now for the, for the bulk starter. I think they call it the bulk, the bulk pitcher, the one who comes in in the second inning who will eat up five oh, really? or six innings. Yeah. Wow. It's not so the what starter. About, what about the Chris Sales of the world? Are they not walking out there with the first pitch? The, no, no, the, of course they are. The best ones do. The best ones do. The first and second do. line starters do it, yeah. The first and second. So the, the Yankees are doing it because they don't have starters. Past the third, I mean, after, and it's a mess in their, in their, they've in their got rotation. Three, they've got three starters. Two or three, and they're just beginning. The, How can right. the Yankees only have two or three starters? Uh, injuries. Uh, Sabathia, okay. Severino went down. Okay. Um, and, you know, also, you know, kind of sloppy performance from some of their main line. But got my it. question is, in football, is yeah, there yeah, going to yeah. be anything we're going to see on the field? And my guess is it has to do with running. Yeah, that's the, the big, the big, the highest profile conversation, I would say, in the analytics, football analytics community lately has been about rush pass, Run, running the ball or passing the ball. And <laughs> it's, an entertaining, it's an entertaining debate, and I'm not that steeped in it. I'm just kind of following it from a, from a side. But in short, you know, their traditional strategy on, 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 on regular downs, you kind of lean towards runs. It's just, it's just kind of the default. It's where football came from. Passing is something you did on third and long. Basically, Daryl Royal, the long time, I think it was Daryl Royal that said this and not Bum Phillips. Daryl Royal said a lot of things. He said a lot of smart things. This at the time might have been smart. He said only three things can happen when you pass and two of them are bad. So this, <laughs> that, that's back in the wishbone era when everybody wanted to just run the ball. And a lot of offensive thinking seems to still be, you know, influenced by that. At least, tr- you know, at least that tradition still exerts more power than it should. So analytics comes along and says, hey, you know, if you look at the numbers, the effectiveness just is, is is there's a great difference in effectiveness of passing versus running, and and it argues for more passing at than all downs at all downs, and it's, it's these traditional downs, it's these regular downs basically, where first and ten, I mean first and ten, if the the average across the league, teams are more effective when they pass than when they rush, and um and some you know there's this is a place where there's a great deal of heterogeneity, so the. Newer coaches, open-minded coaches, the younger coaches are going that way. So you see some teams that are fully adopting that strategy. And then you see other guys and the fans of the teams, especially the analytically-minded fans of these teams with these coaches who are like, establish the run, establish the run, are just banging their heads against their desk because it's so frustrating. And it just seems that this conventional wisdom about the importance of establishing the run is overdone. So I think that's the one. probably it's certainly the most interesting Dialogue and we're going to see anything on the field. Yeah, we're going to see it on the field. We're, what's going on with Zeke Elliott? He's not even being okay, rehired. That's, that's right? a kind of a corollary of this, and that that that's a conversation that's been going on for longer. It's, I think it's kind of a secondary point, but it has been it's related. It, it, pre, pre, it predates it. The, it. the conversation being that running backs. It's not that running backs aren't important. It's that differences in running backs are overstated. That you don't need a guy who was drafted sixth overall to be your running back and run the ball effectively. And if you see, even in, this is a this is referencing an article that was recently done by Josh Hermsmeyer on 538, even if you look at situations where you everyone kind of agrees you need to be able to run the ball, you know, 
goal line offense, for example, or not even goal line, you know, red zone offense, where it becomes harder to pass because the defensive territory to defend is more compressed. It's harder to pass. You need to be able to run. Even if you look there, the top draft picks, the running backs who are top draft picks, aren't doing appreciably better, if at all, right. than the you know bottom-of-the-barrel kind of draft picks. And so it doesn't seem that differences They're in a commodity, talent, I think you'd call them. Yeah, there's, it's, I mean, we, it, you feel bad saying such a thing, but what is, what, again, it's kind of a directional thing. What we can say is these differences between running backs are overstated, and they're, they're not proportional to the difference in the draft value spent in acquiring them. And yet these teams, these teams go out, and after you draft someone like Ezekiel Elliott at number six, after you've done that, you want to use them. And so mm-hmm. Hermsmeyer in his article is like, is it, is it possible that Jerry Jones and Jason Garrett with the Dallas Cowboys, having spent that much draft capital to acquire the guy, feel like they need to run the ball more than is actually optimal? And it's, it's, we don't know, but it's possible. You can explain to them about sunk costs or yeah, not? It's, it's tough. It's <laughs> tough. Even when you've heard about sunk costs, it's hard to live by it. But I do think that, that we're, we're going to see – we're going to see a continued shift because it's already started shifting, but a continued shift towards more passing, and you'll see more teams adopt that philosophy in kind of these traditional running downs. What about college football, Audi? Have I managed to pull you in in any way? Well, I so, mean, I'm I'm interested in college football because of the data, and maybe in the I'll put something together for the next couple of weeks. I'm I'm, I'm looking to put together an Ivy League report. On what we're seeing with uh, Ivy League football, and that'll probably happen within a week or two. But I did look at some of the historical data that we we referenced earlier about home field advantage, and I w- wanted to sort of track teams historically, and that and uh, and also uh, we I think we tweeted this out. Um, yeah, Bill Bill Connolly recently ran his. It was an interesting exercise because his advanced analytics stat is his stats are called S&P plus. So he, he renders team power rankings down to a single number in S&P plus. And of course that's based on detail that's not available historically, but he has an he has an approximate model. He's estimated based on score right. what S&P plus must be or what it, best estimate of what it would be. And it allows him to go back and 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 provide an estimated S&P plus from the beginning of college football which is you know, a long time not, ago. not quite as old years, as baseball, right? but no, much more than that, or late, late 1800s. So he went back and said, okay, what about all-time best, you know, an average across time? And I think that who was number one? Notre Dame, Notre I think Dame. it was Notre Dame. But, that's, but so what I did was I, I decided, well, you know what? Let's just look at it. I look at the same thing using the data that I have, which is since 1996. And this is your power ranking. My power based ranking. And just outcomes, game r- outcomes. Right. So I believe my number one was Ohio. Ohio State. Ohio State. We're gonna, Sorry. We're gonna oh, God darn. You're going to get me. Ohio State was number one, and Alabama was number two. But what was interesting is is that I This is in the last 23 seasons. 20, well, since 96. Yeah. So, yeah, 23 seasons. And what I did was um, I averaged the power ranking over those 23 seasons. And then for the hell of it, I just took the median. Okay. And it's a hugely different. Yeah, it's a very these, big difference. Well, because Alabama runs with these these thirty plus thirty three plus thirty four right. seasons. By the way, that number means the expected differential versus an average team. So they're expected in their top years to beat the average NCAA team by the average FBS points. team by thirty four points. So with those kinds of outlying performances, yeah. which outlying they've performances, done since two thousand and nine, just kind of steadily above thirty. Yes, yeah, uh, yeah. it's ridiculous. If they look, they look, they have the most starkly contrasting history since 96 where 2007 and down they're 10 
plus 10. Plus okay. 10. And then 2009 and up, they're like plus 30. 30. <laughs> and then there's this one year, 2008, where they were 12 and 2, I think. This was Nick Saban's first year or second year. Am I getting this right here? Am I getting, am the I making a mess here? Right was the pronunciation. Save it. Save it. Oh, well, that, you know, okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, we've only had him for hey, five listen, years. Listen we've only had me. him pay attention listen, to college football for you know, five years. <laughs> okay, fine. Right. So Saban starts, I don't know, I think he had two bad seasons, maybe 07 or so. And then by 2008, they were by 09 they were 30s, and well, then they 09, stayed they there. They won the national championship, they so beat, they've been in the 30s since then. Yeah, okay, so it's the but same it's effect, essentially, essentially a level. It's it's an amazingly beautiful piecewise um, uh, um, chart, a scatter plot where it's flat and then a huge jump and, and then that, flat. And that is the same, <laughs> that's a, that's a Saban effect. That's amazing to see it that discreet because even Urban Meyer at Ohio State they weren't as low, but he gets there and they got a step step up. Yeah, but it wasn't quite that nothing that, nothing that is like that. So, but you're saying when you ran medians, Very it pulls those guys back oh, yeah, in. Sure, because remember, there's only they had those bad years, those bad years, yeah, and yeah, and yeah. it's it's just the proportion, right? So, and then so their median, the Alabama median, is still in that lower than because it's only been ten yeah, years. Right, right, so right. once it crosses over thirteen, or once it becomes more than half, it'll start to jump up again. Okay. But media, it's interesting. Like, how do you measure? If you have a composite number, what what do you use? Yeah, it's always an interesting. Yeah, what is the right summary? And and the, the, Connolly did percentile. Yeah, we well, I, we don't know if it was Conley or the folks at ESPN, but we the, you, what the percentile does is it robs you of that right tail. You're kind of interested in that right tail. That's right. You want to know the 34s and the 30. Mm-hmm. 34 is probably no different from 31 in the percentile rank because they're going to be the top That's regardless. Right. That's right. But 34 is a very different team than a 31 team. So let's take the final post and hit the home stretch here. It's Warden Moneyball's Over Under. Adi, I'll turn this over to you. We've only got a couple of minutes, but you can grab a couple of these for us. Mm, boy. Um, wow. I was got, wanted to lead with, a, uh, with an NFL one, but I'm looking at the list and thinking, I don't know about this. So let's talk about Cowboys playoff games. Over under. One <laughs> half. This is of interest to us this here. This is just to play, not to win. This is I'm, just to play. I'm Will they it. make the playoffs? I'm going to short it. I'm, 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 too much drama down there. And I, I know that's probably the easy answer right now, but they haven't signed any of their top three offensive talents. And plus, just I'm just I'm just kind of always short the drama of the Cowboys and the Joneses. So I'm gonna go I'm gonna go under with that. Under, okay. So obviously, their chief competition for the league would be the Eagles. Yep. But then there's the wild card. Yep. A lot of ways in in football. There is, yeah, sure. And they're they're a pretty good team. <laughs> yeah, sure. All right, all right. Well, you know, I'm just gonna go contrary and go over. Good. All right. I, without any sense of this. All right. All, all right. right. So it's not Mal. I'm gonna go to MLB. Oh, actually, let's do college football. Yeah, let's do Let's that. do college football. Mm-hmm. And I have to start because we, we, we alternate here. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of information in going second. So, uh, yeah. so uh, college football, Especially one half, one. Clemson or Alabama championship. Yeah, so one winning, half. Winning, winning the thing. So I'm going to throw out, you know, I'll start with the line. I have plus 220 for Clemson, plus 240 for Alabama. So, those are market odds for either so of those the individual market, teams win. That's right. So, so the market odds, which tend to be a little higher probability than the truth, you have to do the over round to bring it down. So approximately one-third for each of them, a little less than one-third. Are they independent? Are they in, uh, and they are not independent, obviously, because only one could win. Um but only one has to make it. Oh, Making God. it there is not quite independent, but it's close to independent because they're on pretty independent tracks. Yeah, so um, that's a toughie. Um, can you ask a question? Over the last five <laughs> years, anyone else win other than Alabama and Clemson? Uh, over the last five years... Clemson last year, so. Alabama two before. And two, 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 yeah. No, they played right. each other I've, two and two. I'm done. Over. Over. 
You're, I'm just going base rates. Yeah, base when rates. When in doubt, base I, rates. I, I, was trying, I wish you hadn't <laughs> asked the question. I was trying to sucker you into going under, but I think the obvious answer here is over. I mean, we, we may not See, like it. See, this is why going second is hard. We may not like it, but the answer is over. So we have time for a quick last one. We have a quick last one? All right. So, um, all right, let's do uh, Mets. 2.5 finish for the Mets. So it would be worse than third or worse or second or higher. So will they pass the Nationals and the Phillies, which they're behind right now? Actually, no, heck no. I'm going short on this. We that's, The priors still matter, even midseason. We kind of underestimate the impact yeah. of prior midseason. They've played phenomenally well, but I'm, I'm going to stick with the priors and, and short them. All right. I'm agreeing. I'm going uh, over as well, even though my Mets fans out in New Jersey are going to be rolling their eyes at hey, me because they believe in miracles over there. Well, I'd love to see it happen. It'd be fun to see some unexpected things happen in baseball, and I'm happy to pull for the Mets. So but, I'd love to see it, but odds are against. Odds are against. That's all I'm saying. All right, guys. That has been another two hours here on Wharton Moneyball. We do this every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern. Been Cade Massey this morning hosting with Audie Weiner. Great fun, Audie. Appreciate it. For Shane and for Eric in absentia, many thanks to Maddie Dats, our producer boss man, the whole team here carrying us through another week. We hope you'll come back and join us next next week, same time, same place. Until then, enjoy your sports. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.